This episode is brought to you by State Farm. If you're a small business owner, you know that it isn't just your business, it's your life. And whatever your business might be, you want someone who understands. That's why you might want to check out State Farm Small Business Insurance. Why? Because State Farm agents are small business owners too, living and working in your community. That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. Welcome to Recode Media with Peter Kafka. That is me. And today we have yet another, if I do say so myself, excellent double episode for you. First, we've got a conversation about the metaverse and Facebook. You probably heard about those two things recently. So we need to talk about that. So the best guy to talk to about that is the guy Facebook calls up to talk about the metaverse. And that is Matthew Ball, who did not coin the word metaverse, but has been a sort of a metaverse evangelist for some time. You've heard him on this show talking about the metaverse before. Generally, a smart guy to talk to about streaming and gaming, lots of related stuff. And last week, after Mark Zuckerberg told everyone he was transforming his company into a metaverse company and calling it meta, he had a conversation with Matt Ball to talk about what all that meant. So now I've got Matt Ball on to talk about that conversation and the future of the metaverse and Facebook's version of the metaverse. It's a good conversation. People pay a lot of money to talk to Matt Ball about this stuff, but you can listen to it for free. And that's not all. I also talked to Justin Smith, who runs Bloomberg Media's media business. Decidedly not the kind of guy who goes in for hand-wavy metaverse discussions. He is in the business of selling subscriptions and some ads uh, for his growing business, which is going to do about $100 million this year, he says, but not profitable quite yet. Sadly, Justin Smith is not a fan of podcasts, at least the podcasting business, much to the dismay of at least some people in his newsroom. So we talked about that as well. It's a good nuts and bolts conversation about how to run a big growing media business and why Bloomberg has a media business when it's got a really, 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 really big terminal business for all you media and business nerds. And there's a lot of you because you listen to this. um, You will enjoy that as well. Okay, here is me and Matthew Ball. I'm speaking to Matthew Ball, who is a grown man I play Fortnite with regularly. Uh, He is also a big thinker, an investor, spends a lot of time thinking and talking about the metaverse, which meant that last week was, I think, his Christmas and New Year's and many other holidays wrapped up in one for reasons we will discuss. Welcome, Matthew. Good to see you. We are talking because Mark Zuckerberg talked about the metaverse yesterday, sorry, last week, and that's the thing you've been talking to me and many people about for years. Uh, He also talked to you about the metaverse, and I want to ask about that conversation, but let's go very, very big picture. I think anyone here has knows that Mark Zuckerberg has changed the name of Facebook to Meta and has said the company is engaged in the metaverse, uh, wants to pursue a vision of that, which kind of looks like cyberspace, or if you've seen Ready Player One, a version of that. Um, something you've been talking about for a long time. What about what Zuckerberg announced last week, if anything, surprises you? I think the degree to which he's marshalling this incredibly successful company, the seventh most valuable public company on earth towards a mostly new vision was the most surprising part. There are tens of thousands of employees. There's tens of billions of dollars in annual revenue from the what is now considered legacy business. And it's very clear that he sees the future as entirely distinctive, new devices, new software, new standards, new interaction models. And he's showing himself to be not particularly nostalgic for the business that even today is still one of the biggest and best globally. 
And this is this is the problem every big successful company has, whether they're a tech company or they make cars, is you have a big successful business that throws off a lot of money. Even if you can see the future coming, you don't want to abandon the existing business. Uh, and managing that conflict is, is very difficult. Uh, but he's saying this isn't coming next year. This is, what, five to 10 years out? He's certainly saying it's five to 10 years out. But from an internal culture and R&D perspective, I think he's saying it's now. And I think that there are some interesting analogs here. The internet caught almost everyone by surprise. The mobile internet still caught many by surprise. And Facebook is actually a great example of that. It's common to hear about Facebook as one of the best ever pivots to mobile, the speed with which their revenue shifted from desktop to mobile. But that's partly because Facebook was actually late to understand its technical premises. It was 2008 that the App Store came out on iPhone, 2009 that Apple came out with its famous There's an app for that ad campaign. A year later in 2010, Sesame Street parodied it. And yet it wasn't until 2012 that Facebook actually wrote a native app for the iPhone. Within one month of switching over to a native code base, they had doubled time in the feed on the app. Zuckerberg called it the greatest mistake the company had ever made, said that it cost them two years in the mobile era because they bet on HTML5. The app was actually just a thin HTML5 client. And so I think Mark has learned from the speed with which mobile disrupted the world through which the internet disrupted the world. He personally knows the consequence of being a little bit late, even if he was one of the biggest beneficiaries of the shift and is committed to not being late and in fact being well early. The move from desktop to mobile, you describe it as a pivot. To me, it's, I mean, get that it was very involved, but it was still taking Facebook and moving it from one screen to a smaller screen. Is Metaverse the same idea that there's going to be all the sort of Facebook business models, advertising, and a way to connect and or yell at people, um, but this time it's going to be in VR, or is it an entirely different business? And my, my understanding is it's he's positioning it as the second, but is it really just sort of taking Facebook and extending it into a new screen? I think you would think of it as both, and I don't mean to skirt the question. I mean that if you take a look at, say, BlackBerry Messenger or Skype, two early leaders in the internet communication space, and in one case, the mobile communication space. When you take a look at what that looks like in 2021, it's not just that wrapped in another brand. Snapchat, WhatsApp, Slack, these communication platforms are still primarily about sending text messages from one to another, but they're designed for very different media, very different use cases. They're deeply integrated in some cases to APIs for productivity. And so I think we can think about Facebook in a very linear sense, moving over to virtual worlds as a space for interaction, to talk to loved ones, to see images and content from another. But we also expect that the nature of interaction, that the actual experience ends up looking very different. Snapchat and stories are not just more pictorial versions of BBM. They're actually very different cultural products to the point in which some people communicate without text at all. When it comes to a business model, I think the broad expectation is that this next stage is a lot less focused around ad units and more on virtual content, which for Facebook means a new revenue stream. They're purely ad-based today for the most part. So at some point, they the business that they make serving up ads in my Instagram and Facebook feed recedes and is replaced with something else. Zuckerberg did sort of a softer rollout of, of his interest in the metaverse earlier this year. And in an interview with Casey Newton, he mentioned that he'd been reading a lot of your stuff because you've been writing about the metaverse for, for quite some time. Had you talked to Zuckerberg in the run-up to either that announcement or this one? 
We spoke a few weeks prior to the announcement, but at which point I would assume almost all of it was baked. You mean you mean this most recent announcement? Correct. And what did Mark Zuckerberg want to know from you when he was speaking to you, when he was calling you up? I wouldn't want to reveal anything in, in great detail, but I think we were walking through various theses of the future. And I'll give you a good way to frame that. I'm sure you saw the recent leak from CNBC that Facebook confirmed, which was Jason Rubin, now VP content at Meta, talking about his 2018 vision for the metaverse and Facebook's opportunity. When you read that memo or the coverage of it, I haven't seen the document, it's very focused on the zero-sum Web2 adversarial vision of the future. Facebook can own the metaverse. Facebook can be 50% of revenues in the metaverse. Facebook will define the standards and practices of the metaverse. If you compare to what happened in last week's presentation, Mark took a very different approach. It was a lot more based on the collective GDP of the metaverse. That's a term he's been using quite frequently, premised upon interoperability, not just within his own experiences, but within the internet at large. And he spoke at several instances about competitors, Roblox, Unity, Epic Games, Unreal, about collaborating to build this second plane of human existence. What do you think? So that, that's the big, a big question a lot of people have. One, which is, I don't want anything to do with Facebook, period. But even if you allow that Facebook is going to be around, should the metaverse work as sort of a one company operation? Um, should Facebook have an outsized role in, in what the metaverse becomes? Um, should it be a federation of lots of different things? If so, how can that work? Or is this all going to be controlled by one Borg? So it's it's an all it's it's a it's a bunch of stuff in that question because it's five questions. But do you believe that Zuckerberg really thinks that he's going to be one member of the federated metaverse community? Because the other Another uh, commonly held belief is Mark Zuckerberg thinks this is the way to leapfrog Google and and Apple. Right now, the only way to interact with Facebook is on Google or Apple's hardware. He would love to get away from that. And it seems like that would be as, as much of an impetus as anything else, which means that he would control the metaverse or his version of the metaverse. There is certainly merit in arguing that he sees this as a particularly unique opportunity for Facebook. Facebook, among the GAFM or whatever the acronym would be now that it's called Meta, is the only one of those five big tech companies without a dominant operating system or hardware. Oculus has fewer than 10 million units in use. There's billions of Android and iOS devices. That means that his business is stymied, it's controlled, it's disintermediated, it's limited in ways that no one else is. Microsoft can do what it wants on Windows or on Xbox. Android and Google can do what they want in their platform. And Apple, of course, loves to control some of the software applications on their stack. And so I do think that Mark and the rest of the Facebook team sees this as an opportunity to get out from under that thumb. Thus far, he's also communicated the ways in which he believes they would be a better steward of hardware. He committed the other day to continuing to allow sideloading on the Oculus, to keeping down the fees paid, to having an open identity system, none of which are kind of key principles of Apple. But I also think that there's a reality of where they're positioned, not just in hardware, but in the developer ecosystem that requires them to be more open. It kind of reminds me a little bit like what's happened to Microsoft. Last year, Brad Smith, the president, came out and said Microsoft was on the wrong side of history on closed versus open. One can reasonably conclude that had Microsoft dominated in mobile as Apple had, Microsoft would not be pro-open. They would instead still be closed. But the fact of the matter is Microsoft lost 
the mobile operating system and is now open because they have to be. And they've had policy changes to support that. And Facebook, I think, sincerely recognizes that for strategic necessity or just to realize their vision, they need to be philosophically open. What do you mean by strategic necessity they need to be open? Because it won't work if they're not, because um, competitors won't work with them, because government or governments will make them do so? I think it's primarily a developer argument. We saw Mark mention this several times. It was very consistent to what Tim Sweeney has been saying for several years now, which is the enormity of the task of building the metaverse means that you need millions of developers, millions of users, and they need to be handsomely rewarded for that investment to actually build things in virtual space. This is a war for developers in a return to Balmer-esque ideology. And I think Mark knows that at this point in time, with the reputation they've accumulated over 15 years, with the head start of the App Store and the Android ecosystem, they need to offer developers considerably greater profits, considerably greater security in their future, and a much more advantageous building environment in order to attract any of them. And a much smaller scale version of that concession is Facebook has its own newsletter product called Bulletin. And because they know that lots of writers don't want anything to do with Facebook or are scared of Facebook saying this is something we're interested in this week, but not next week, they offered two year deals to everybody who, who was going to come on and write a newsletter for them. About regulation, I've been thinking about this a lot because of, of the new hardware that Apple and Facebook and everyone else are rolling out with, which are various, whether it's VR or AR, they're putting a, a, a computer or iPhone on your face. And I'm watching them roll roll this stuff out while you see regulators sincerely grappling with how to deal with Facebook, for instance, which was built, you know, the previous decade, two decades ago. How do you think government regulators, lawmakers are going to grapple with way more complex consumer software and hardware that's by definition, by meant to be so much more immersive? How do you think people are going to regulate the actual devices, and then whatever happens inside the metaverse? It's a really great question. And I think that there are three ways to think about it. Number one is the premise of the metaverse supposes that an ever-growing share of our time, labor, leisure, spend, wealth, relationships, friendships, happiness will be inside virtual worlds. That necessarily means that societal problems of happiness and relationships and income inequality are going to become more present than ever. The second part of that is, of course, identifying that many of these so-called Web2 problems of data rights, data security, misinformation, platform power, regulation, abuse, radicalization, none of those have really good solutions today. And so I certainly understand the distress among regulators and of consumers saying we're moving to a world in which the problems we already can't solve are going to become more difficult. When it comes to this question of how does government get involved? I think we have some recency bias that leads to pessimism. Over the past 30 years, the government has not been highly involved in regulating new technologies, especially the most transformative ones. Over the arc of the last century, that's not the case. We saw that with rail, with steel, with telecommunications, with energy. And in fact, even through the early 90s, the U.S. government was very involved. The metaverse is fundamentally a question about standards and interoperability, in the mid-1980s, the U.S. government set up what's called the Internet Engineering Task Force. The government no longer, or the U.S. government no longer runs that group, but that group still defines the standards of the Internet today. And so the hope among many metaverse theorists and open metaverse advocates 
is that governments in the EU and in the US are going to take a similar approach, which is they are going to say, as we did 30 years ago, here are the standards. If you want to have a virtual world, here's exactly the identity system you have to integrate into or interchange into. Here are the principles of what the user owns and does not own. And if they don't, the concern will be that we actually just see more closure. That all sounds helpful, but the cons- the big, I mean, everyone's got a different version of why they hate the internet, right? But a lot of them coalesce around power is aggregating to a, a increasingly smaller number of ever more powerful places people, entities, and they can abuse that power, they can neglect that power, and we are powerless to stop them. And if the metaverse is sort of an acceleration of where we are now, how do we not end up in that same place? It's a valid argument. It is to some extent difficult to predict what the best preparations will be because we don't know about the societal impacts of these things. I mean, Mm -hmm. misinformation, I like to talk about the fact that we now have a society where Large corporations are saved by YOLO options trading on Robinhood while people ride the subway. That's a societal ricochet, and I'm talking about AMC or GameStop. Mm -hmm. That's a societal ricochet that was hard to predict and therefore hard to prepare for. But I think the simple answer to your question is governments, users, developers, consumers are more aware of these problems today than they were 15 years ago. And just as Mark is saying, a big phase state change is happening. Governments and users can do that too. And that provides more agency in dictating the philosophies and policies of these companies. Can I opt out of the metaverse? In theory, I can opt out of being a a smartphone user, but the reality is I can't. Not in any practical way. If I want to participate in modern society, and we didn't vote on that. Now now I'm copying a, a line I wrote for my my Apple podcast. We didn't vote on this. We, it happened. We sort of facilitated it by buying the technology, but no one ever said in 2007, we are going to move to a world where you have to have one of these phones to participate in modernity. Uh, if you want to go anywhere, buy anything, do anything. Are we going to end up in the same place in the metaverse or is this going to be optional? I think it's going to be optional to the degree in which you could live off the grid. You cannot have a smartphone. You cannot be online constantly. There are many professions and many places in the United States for which being persistently connected is not a requirement. But for all intents and purposes, you are online. You are in this world. And it's hard to get around that. If you notice what Mark Zuckerberg said during, I think, our conversation, he was saying that when they think about privacy and the ability to opt in, it's that someone cannot be in the system. That's an active choice to opt out. That's not the choice not to opt in. If you see many of these visions, it is of walking down the street with an AR headset that recognizes those around you, their avatars and so forth, which is to say you might be walking down the street, a non-participant, and yet my AR glasses acknowledge you as being there. A building might acknowledge you as being there, even if you're not actively participating. Um, I don't love it but you seem to believe it's coming. You have bet your business on it. Talk about that business for a second. You do consulting, you do uh, uh, investing, and you also have a a way for people to invest publicly in this through an ETF. Just explain what that is briefly. So an ETF or exchange traded fund is essentially a index that represents a basket of other companies. The simplest way to think about it is if you could go back to 1995 and buy Apple stock, you would. And yet many people in 1995 didn't bet on Apple. They perhaps bet on BlackBerry or Samsung or Nokia, reasonable bets at the time that didn't pay off. 
Had you instead purchased a basket of mobile internet or mobile computing or cloud computing stocks, you may not have matched the returns of Apple, but you'd have achieved thousands of percent returns because the enormity of the internet and mobile internet and social networking transformation was so great that you had trillions of dollars in value produced. What my company has done with a council of former executives at Oculus, at NVIDIA, at Valve, is produce an index that's designed to provide everyday retail or individual public consumers an opportunity to get balanced exposure to 42 leading names in the metaverse that allows you to say, as long as this thesis is broadly right and broadly valuable, we'll benefit. So and you, that means you have that, a pile of stocks that include Facebook slash Meta that are in this index. Yeah, Roblox, NVIDIA, Unity, a company called Immersion, which is a leader in haptics that has most of the patents, various chipset manufacturers and so forth. So if I think the metaverse is coming, whether or not I think it's a utopia or dystopia, I may be able to profit from it by giving you some money. Should our index construction be relatively accurate? <laughs> that is that is the most tempered sales pitch I've ever heard, but I, I appreciate it. I appreciate talking to you, Matthew Ball. Like I said, we could talk about this for hours. I'm sure we'll have another conversation, but we're going to leave it there. Thank you. See you soon. Thanks again to Matthew Ball for having that conversation with us in a second. We're going to talk to Justin Smith, but first we're going to hear from an advertiser. Yes, an advertiser. We'll be right back. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You've heard it before. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. But it's more than just a tagline. Because State Farm agents are small business owners themselves who live and work in your community. And if you're in the market for small business insurance, who better to work with than an agent who understands what it takes? State Farm agents can help you create a personalized insurance plan that fits your small business needs and budget. Talk to your local State Farm agent today about small business insurance. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. I'm here talking to Justin Smith, who is CEO of the Bloomberg Media Group and someone I've wanted to have on the show for a long time. Welcome, Justin. Hey, good to see you, Peter. Thanks yeah, for thanks me. for doing this. Uh, we uh, we've been trying to figure out how to do this for for some time. The main thrust here is you're going to come on my podcast and tell me why journalists overvalue podcasts and they should spend more time on video. So we can get to that. Do we want to get into that now? No, we can start by just explaining what you do for okay. for your day job when you're not insulting podcasters. <laughs> Off mic, we were just explaining the difference between Bloomberg LP and Bloomberg Media Group. I think a bunch of people who listen to this podcast know that there's a Bloomberg terminal business and there's a Bloomberg media business. Can we just say that you run the stuff that isn't the terminal business? Uh, not exactly, but I can, I can say I run the stuff that is folk, that is the consumer media stuff at Bloomberg. And just I'll just go back a little bit. Bloomberg was founded as a, biz, as a financial tech and data company um, serving the financial industry, serving investors, Wall Street. Um, content was a huge part of that at the beginning. Um, and I think at one point, Mike, uh, the light bulb went off over Mike's head and he thought, oh my That's God. Mike I'm, Bloomberg. Mike Bloomberg, the founder. The I, oh my God, yeah. I'm creating so much content and I'd love to build my brand to a broader audience. And so he launched Bloomberg Media, starting with radio in New York City, starting with financial radio. Um, and uh, that was, I think, in the, in the mid 1980s. And 30, 35, 40 years later, because we just actually now celebrating this year, our 40th anniversary, I think Bloomberg Media, you know, has is one of the certainly one of the largest business and financial media companies in the world. But we're we're a separate business unit from the terminals, um, but designed to add value to the terminal business uh, in a variety of different ways. So not to get too deep 
too soon. But the the army of reporters that work cranking out news stories that run on the Bloomberg terminal, that's the $2,000 a month-ish service that the traders rely on, they work for you or that's a separate group? So there's a news there's a, a, a newsroom which is an integrated newsroom that is whose primary mission is to is to deliver content to the terminal. We sort of the media group operates downstream from that, and so we take a portion of that content and then publish that content onto the web and different channels that we mm-hmm. have. Now, having said that, we also have a Bloomberg Media. Uh, set of dedicated journalistic you know, newsrooms, if you will. Obviously, our TV operations, our streaming operations, some digital operations, um, our radio operations are, are, are more dedicated to the consumer audience. So they all are integrated into a global newsroom. The journalists that actually work on media projects and products and platforms jointly report to myself and, and uh, John Micklethwaite, the editor-in-chief. But John Micklethwaite oversees all the journalism and content for the terminal and the media as well, if that's, okay. if that's clear. I fear that, that, that everyone who is listening to this has now exited unless they work at Bloomberg. But, but we'll, we'll, um, it's my fault for, for leading us down this path. I wanted to go very big picture with you first. You came in to Bloomberg from the Atlantic in 2013, and this was an era when you guys were doing a big push into B2C. You wanted to sort of buff up the Bloomberg brand. Um, you, you'd already acquired Business Week. You were overhauling that. Uh, you hired Josh Topolsky, formerly of, of Vox Media, to, to do a lot of stuff on the web. And it was a very consumer-focused, presumably ad-driven business. And then at some point, you guys took a hard pivot from that, and you are now fully embracing subscriptions. Um, and you've built that subscription business up. I think you're now, I think you're projecting you're going to hit more than $100 million in subscription revenue this year. Is that right? Yes, we'll get we'll get very close to that. So, I think anyone listening to this uh, understands the general reasons why people are embracing subscriptions. Is there something particular at Bloomberg about why you guys started with an ad-driven B two C business and then pivoted back to subscriptions? Well, I think I mean the, the history of Bloomberg is that we've been a subscription business from the beginning since we started the terminal business, right? So, um, and when you have a twenty-four thousand dollars subscription uh, a year. Uh, selling to 350,000 people a year to banks, institutions, that's a pretty good starting point for a business, for an information business. And so their appetite for looking at sort of what inevitably would be smaller new consumer subscription opportunities with our media business was not very high, especially if it would at any point risk the uh, the core business, which which obviously had a very very well established and very successful subscription model, I think, um, and so for years and years and years, the, the question of a subscription, a consumer subscription at Bloomberg was really not on the table. Um, in 2017, uh, as we had spent you know, uh, several years building out our digital platforms. Uh, which had grown tremendously between 13, 14, 15. I got here in 13. Um, the audiences, you know, were very global. They're very large. We had about, you know, got to re- reach around, you know, 50, 60 million owned and operated unique users a month, and double that if you look at distributed. And you know, all of a sudden, we looked at ourselves and said, well, well, maybe now, given the scale of our digital properties, is a good time to revisit the question of whether a, a consumer subscription actually could make sense. And our conclusion was, 
it's really just fundamentally such a different marketplace um, for subscribers than the terminal business. Um, you're really you're looking at um, you know basically just a content site that's competing directly with the journal, with the FT, with those those being the two main competitors, and you really don't have any of the the intense uh, technology and tools and um, and other services that the core terminal offers. And so um, we ended up testing it out and uh, it, the business grew much more rapidly than all of us thought. And uh, the terminal business also grew during that time. So that suggests that the, that the overlap between the two businesses actually did, was not, it did not exist. So you're saying you had a big enough audience where you said, oh, we think actually that maybe if Peter deciding to subscribe to Bloomberg Media so he can read Jerry Smith and Lucas Shaw is not going to impact whether or not Peter would have uh, had a terminal subscription. Uh, and you did that and it worked. Was that also, hey, we've been trying advertising and it's not working. And like everyone else, we thought we were going to have a big ad boom fueled on the back of, of Facebook and, and Google. Or was, or, or was that separate from the sort of the performance of, of advertising? Well, you're right to point out that actually in, in, in its history up until 2018, when we launched the paywall, Bloomberg Media really had been an advertising-driven media business for the reasons I mentioned. And I think, you know, and we, we digitized it quite aggressively. We globalized it. Again, global is a very, very unique thing for us as a company. Um, and we began to monetize it digitally quite effectively in the advertising space. As you know, better than anyone, um, digital advertising revenue as sort of this sole source of salvation for digital media businesses or, or legacy businesses with digital media, that began you know, slowing down quite rapidly in 18, 17, 18, 19, obviously with the platforms and other, other forces. And we turned to ourselves at that time, I think it was in 17, and, and with, with a slowing down digital ad revenue stream, decided, okay, well, we need to embark on a completely different strategy. And we looked internally and we launched what we, what we call here at Bloomberg, sort of an invention-led growth approach, which was the idea is, you know, we have basically only, only a lot of traditional media assets. We got TV, we got radio, we got print, we got digital, obviously. But digital at that point was sort of feeling like it was moving to a legacy asset. And so what do you do? Your back's against the wall. You know, you can see the consumer trend lines, you can see the, the commercial trend lines, they're all negative. Our answer was, okay, well then let's go, let's go on the offensive. Let's invent, let's innovate. Let's look at markets that are adjacent where we have a strong competitive opportunity and advantage, assets, whatever they may be. And we basically committed to launching um, a new business every single year. And over the last you know, five years, we've launched five new businesses, each which was designed to be a significant business to grow at scale. Each was designed to sort of, to attack an existing legacy market that was adjacent to us. Um, and each was, that was designed to obviously further build uh, the Bloomer brand. So in the case of the subscription business, we looked at the, the FT and the, the Wall Street Journal and said, my God, that's, you know, that's, that's over a billion dollar pool of subscription, consumer subscription revenue. And we looked at our journalistic uh, news gathering uh, resources around the world and said, my God, we're, we're not so shabby. We've got quite a few journalists around, around the, the planet. And even if we're, we're only taking a portion of the content that goes onto the terminal, we can create a very, very compelling consumer uh, business uh, media proposition that can compete directly with the journal and the FT. Dumb question, but sincere question. Since a lot of uh, media strategies are either put up a paywall or hope a billionaire buys us. You guys are already owned by a billionaire. Uh, he's got this incredible business that throws off tons of cash. People have been trying to unseat the terminal business for literally decades. It hasn't happened. Why does Mike Bloomberg want to have 
a growing consumer media business that even if it is fantastic, is never going to come close to to doing what his terminal business does? Why does he need this to be a successful standalone business? I mean, I think, um, I believe, and I think he, he agrees with this, that if you're successful commercially, it's because you're successful with audiences. It's because you have the best products. It's because you drive the deepest engagement. It's because you have the smartest teams. It's because you're executing at the highest level. It's because you're, you're innovating. And they're sort of synonymous with one or the other. The market leader it, you know, with consumers uh, generally becomes the commercially most successful market player in that, in that space. And so it's, it's really, it was really about how do we become the world's most important, influential, and leading business and financial media company. And to do so required taking the fight to a lot of the incumbents that didn't have the same, I think, entrepreneurial culture and spirit and, and ability to move rapidly and quickly. I was mentioning these five businesses we launched. I mean, so one was this consumer subscription business, which was going directly at the, the FT and the Wall Street Journal. Secondarily, in that same period, we launched a social video business, which is now transitioned to streaming called Bloomberg Quick Take, which was obviously directly uh, an, an incursion into the social video and streaming space, which, you know, we, 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 in, in linear TV, we have one uh, traditional competitor in, in CNBC around the world. And so... We got to jump on that, and so that, in a sense, was lo- was looking to to incur into the CNBC territory, both linear and cable and satellite, but also somewhat disruptive of ourselves because we have Bloomberg TV too. And thirdly, and probably less get which get, is less well known just in the media because media writers don't tend to like to write about conferences. We saw Davos, the World Economic Forum, as the classic legacy business uh, convening business of world business, financial, uh, political leaders. But it was, you know, not evolving with the times, not evolving with the geopolitical changes in the world. And so we created the New Economy Forum as a, as a direct alternative to the World Economic Forum, which was based in Asia, anchored in the uh, growing new economies of China, India, Middle East, Africa, Latin America, and more. So these were all new efforts, new businesses aimed to go after, effectively, uh, legacy players around us. And so big picture, the idea is we're going to launch these businesses. We want them to be standalone businesses because that uh, that focus will make the product better. It's a virtuous cycle. Uh, I'm going to ask you about a couple of those in a second. But but um, are you guys making money yet? I think you've been losing money for a long time. Are, is that are you still in the red? You know, we are. Um, uh, it's it, this is obviously media has been a, a, a brand investment for for my for many, many years. And um, all I'll say is we don't we don't share our financials, but we're getting very close and uh, we are, you know, we're really pleased actually 2021 we're closing the books on is going to be really kind of a historic year. I know it's kind of a historic year for everyone else. So I don't want to pat ourselves on the back more than anyone else, but we saw 50%. We're seeing 50% year over year revenue growth on a pretty sizable business. Everyone's having a good year compared to last year, but yours, I, one of your memos I saw said, you know, we're doing even well compared to 2019. It's hard to know, Peter. I mean, I think it's, I wouldn't want to overstate how well we're doing compared to others because you just don't have visibility into other mm-hmm. people's performance. I would say that, you know, that, that, you know, this year has been totally transformational and it's gotten us in, you know, in the, in the very, very uh, single yard lines to use a sports metaphor to profitability, which is really exciting for us. And what's interesting is that actually the, it was, it's all, it's really revenue growth driven. I mean, this, this, you know, our transformation of the media company, we have not 
really uh, touch the the cost structure um, in, a, in an aggressive way. Uh, we've been continuing to invest in our core TV, print, and uh, and radio platforms, which we believe in, which which offer so much value to the other new platforms in different ways, in content, in um, in distribution, and and otherwise. But but not profitable yet. You mentioned um, Bloomberg's QuickTime. This used to be Quick called. Take. Quick take, sorry, uh, I'm recording on QuickTime. I think, that, I think it's it used Apple. To be, it used to, exactly, it used to, be, it used to be called TikTok, and I saw it on my Twitter for a <laughs> while. Uh, so it was a good name. Why'd you give it up? T-I-C-T-O-C. Yeah. Uh, well, that was, you know, Jack Dorsey and Mike Bloomberg um, announced it on stage, the, the name, um, and we were all excited about it. Little did we know that um, an entrepreneur named Zhang Yiming in, in Beijing, China, was... Um, was busy building, you know, what would soon be the, the world's most you know, successful new entrant in, in social media, in T-I-K-T-O-K. And um, there's some funny conversations in those early days where it was just, it was like sort of like a tsunami wave hitting us, a branding one where, you know, everyone, advertisers, and we're like, are you really going to call yourselves T-I-C-T-O-C in the face of this? And uh, And there's some interesting internal conversations where we were sort of briefing everyone on, you know, this is, this is a real problem. We need to change it. And so you guys decided to change it. You weren't required legally to change it. It wasn't no, a no, in fact, no, we, no, T-I-C-T-O-K. I mean, we, we were buttoned up legally and otherwise, as you'd expect us to be a company of our size. But when it came, you know, I mean, when TikTok, T-I-K-T-O-K became so ubiquitous and became on the tip of every, you know, mom, dad, teenagers, tongues across this country, uh, it just, you know, every, and advertisers and media buyers, it just became untenable. So you, 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 whatever, whatever the term is for, for not getting your heads beaten in by the market, you just say, all right, we're, we're going to give up and, and pick a different name. Bigger question is why do you need a streaming TV, streaming video thing? You already have, like you said, uh, an, a, a Bloomberg TV operation. It's meant to go up against uh, CNBC. Why did you need to create an entirely new video platform and, and, and what are you doing with it? Well, I think, I mean, first of all, it starts with understanding what Bloomberg TV is, which is, you know, Bloomberg TV is by design and by architecture, um, you know, a very, very focused institutional B2B finance um, information channel. Sure, we have general news as it affects the markets, but it really is. I mean, even if you look at the kind of the format of Bloomberg TV, we chase the market close like we would chase the sun around the earth. I mean, literally, it's sort of, you know, if it's, if it's, if it's market close in... Uh, in London, and we're moving on to you know to New York, et cetera. Yep. So, so it's it's very focused, and therefore has actually quite narrow audiences. And that's because of the relationship between our TV product and our terminal business, where we really wanted to focus on on reaching those types of customers. Bloomberg uh, TV is for people who have terminal subscriptions. That's not required to, but the, but the expectation is it's the same focus. If if you needed to know how the the yield is doing uh, on the terminal, it's, we have TV program. TV programming for you as well. It's, it's, it's for the, the a broader ring beyond that core mm -hmm. terminal subscriber. I mean, they say that you know, we have about 340,000 terminal subscribers. They say there's about a 1.1 to 1.2 million potential subscribers who use Refinitiv or Reuters' old product. Or, but Bloomberg TV is for that core financial audience and obviously goes beyond that because it's so global. CNBC has always been so much more focused on the on the retail U.S. Um, yes. investor market, and so that's you know it's been a differentiation. Therefore, they've had larger audiences, larger ad revenues, etc. As we built out Bloomberg Media from what was really kind of a narrow B two B 
you know, ad-driven business, as I mentioned in 2013, to a much broader, digitally-centered, increasingly, I guess, prosumer-focused media company. And we all of a sudden, we had 100 million professionals, business people from MBA to the C-suite all around the world consuming our content. We realized, my goodness, well, we're, we're actually, you know, we, we are we're reaching a much, much broader audience with these new platforms. And we didn't have a, a, a video uh, offering that was targeting that broader prosumer audience. And BT, Bloomberg TV's uh, OTT offering was going to become a streaming offering of that more institutional B2B focus. And so Bloomberg Quick Take is really designed as a business network for the next generation um, all around the world. You know, the, the idea being that business has become, you know, not just you know, a, a cultural passport all around the world where people people are starting companies, entrepreneurship, technology, the impact of that on uh, on society, on what people do, that there are so many stories to be told and, and news to be shared to a rising, up-and-coming, next generation of business, you know, modern leaders, if you will. That's the marketing language we use. And that we would create a network for that and that these people were cord cutters, these people were... Um, consume social video video on social. And so we'd go meet them on YouTube, meet them on Twitter, meet them on Instagram, and obviously meet them on in the connected TV ecosystem, um, which we which we've now done for the last year. And, you know, we're on about 40 different um, uh, CTV or OTT distribution networks, both domestically and around the world. Got three hours, two and a half to three hours of live news programming a day. Um, I think we've got you know, almost close to 75 dedicated journalists for this business and investing into it. And it's also been a huge commercial success because, you know, the, and this goes back to the podcast question, I can give you the lead back in, the size of the global, of the U.S. and global linear video advertising market is still massive. I mean, you're still talking about, in 2021, $65 billion of revenue going against cable, satellite, linear television offerings, even as their audiences decline. On digital video alone, it's $55 billion, and the digital video piece is growing at 20% a year. So add those This together. is why when everyone blames Facebook for the pivot to video, they're, they're, they're not exactly right, right? The reason people went to video is because there's a giant video market. a giant market, market there. there. I mean, if you add the linear advertising I just mentioned and the digital video stuff that's already transitioned, you're up to $110 billion. Um, and this will just, you know, and I'm, I, I don't mean to uh, hark it back to our podcast discussion, but when you're looking at $105 billion, $110 billion market, half of which is still transitioning from declining traditional TV assets into streaming, and then you're looking at a market of $17 billion, which is the radio and digital audio market, and then the podcast market as a subset of that is $6 billion. You're really you're talking about a very 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 different market yeah, let's, size. Yeah, let's hold off on the, the the TV versus audio fight for one more second. But but I get why everyone you and everyone else, including Vox Media, is continuing to pursue TV and video. Right, big giant market, a lot of money there. Um, I'm always interested in strategy. Right, uh, at least for now, uh, Vox Media is producer for hire. Uh, we make shows that people buy from us and then they put them on their networks. We don't yet have our own network. It seems to me that sort of saying you have your own network is one thing, but actually getting people to engage with you on a regular basis is something different. The reason CNBC works is because people have it on actual linear TVs in whatever office they're on. How do you program for a streaming world where people are leaning in and choosing to, to click into something as opposed to having a sort of background wallpaper ambient noise? 
Well, I mean, I think, I mean, for, for us, um, I should say that we, we do view a lot of these early stage businesses as experimental, as sort of fueled by a real test and learn philosophy. Um, you know, I, I know that when Mike Bloomberg started Bloomberg TV 20, 30 years ago, I think he took print reporters and put them in front of a camera, you know, and was like, mm -hmm. okay, now read your story online, read your story in front of a camera. Yeah. That culture, you know, I mean, that's an extreme example. That, that, that culture continues here, and it's so valuable to have that type of culture. Just try things out, see what works, you know, and it's just a, a constant uh, game of test and learn, test and learn, and moving as quickly as you possibly can while you're testing and learn so you can get the most learning. So for us, you know, we divided it up between social video, short form social video, where, where the audiences are, uh, and then obviously streaming. We're three years into this, obviously um, done more on social video. We produce like, like 50, 40 to 50 social video packages a week on Twitter, uh, and uh, primarily Twitter and YouTube. Um, I'm scrolling, I'm there, something yeah, yeah, filters see, into my feed. Exactly. You and, you know, and, you know, we've, you know, I don't know, the last couple of months, I mean, I think it obviously every, everything peaked around January 6th and around the spring of COVID of 2020. But let's just use our most recent um, data, which is, which is when the, the news cycle has been down. I mean, we're talking about like, you know, 60 to 100 million social views, high quality social views to this content and some really interesting monetization opportunities in partnership with the platforms that didn't exist before. You know, Twitter in particular, which launched this brand with us, has been been very helpful at selling it themselves, allowing us to selling it, co-selling it together, uh, revenue shares that are more advantageous. Um, to the point where actually it's it's you know now we have a formula on on Twitter and incre increasingly on YouTube though we're a little bit further behind uh, there that actually really really works. Seems like you guys are much more naturally just the kind of stuff you make is much more naturally. It's it's gonna do better on Twitter, which is newsy, and people can go yeah. to versus YouTube, which is younger and 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 not people do get news from there. It's it's hard to see them getting yeah. Bloomberg news. Well, from I there. think that I mean I mean I think that you may have heard this, but after um, the Trump era and the January sixth events, I know that YouTube dialed down the news component of its algorithm really aggressively on YouTube. And so I think a lot of publishers who are, who are building news-based businesses on YouTube really saw a big decline across 2020 and, and, and beyond. But, but for YouTube, we're not, we're not actually, you know, we're, we're obviously customizing the, the programming to each of the platforms and to the mediums, including streaming, and just trying different things. And so we've got a series of, you know, we've got something like 3 million subscribers on YouTube for 2.9 million for, for Quick Take, which is really quite, uh, quite respectable. I think we generate, according to Twitter, I think we generate the most revenue on Twitter of any news, um, uh, news partner that they have, which is great for a brand new brand. Um, and the programming on YouTube is, is sim more similar to the programming strategy that, that we're trying on the streaming, which is a, a whole series of short form and mid form mini docs where we're sort of going into telling you know, the stories behind the headlines and business stories, you know, the Adam Newman story, you know, yep. the, the blah, blah, blah. And, and it's, um, and then we're interspersing some of these mini docs, you know, with two things, one with some, you know, top of the hour kind of uh, morning, lunch and evening news, uh, news programming, but that's the two and a half hours that we do every day. And then we're going out there and building, you know, and, and trying to build some talent based shows which we know, of course, are you know are, are essential to getting audiences on a, what is a very crowded and, and increasingly busy streaming environment. So, um, you know, we launched the business of fashion. 
uh, with Imran Ahmed a few weeks ago, uh, which is a sort of a, a global business of fashion show. We've um, we're launching a new show with this with this wonderful up and coming newscaster, sort of investigative uh, interviewer extraordinaire called Emma Barnett in the UK, who we're bringing on, who's at the BBC uh, on Newsnight, who's going to come have her own dedicated show on a weekly basis. Um, and we're, you know, we're talking to lots of different talent about owned and operated uh, talent-based shows in addition to that. And then finally, the mini-docs that I mentioned, which work well on YouTube. We're streaming them on, on Quick Take as well. It's, you know, it's, we're learning, though. You know, I mean, Samsung TV Plus is great. You know, we're building an audience there, but we're having a harder time on some other platforms. And, you know, in aggregate right now, I think we're probably not, you know, I think we're, I think we're doing like something like five to six million uniques a month on streaming. You know, which is obviously a fraction of what we're doing on social um, that I mentioned. Um, do you think that's going to be you guys have to crack some programming code or do you think streaming TV distribution has to get simplified so I don't need to go poking around through an app store to find you guys to begin with something else? I think it's all of the above, but I would put at the top of the list breakthrough original programming that's talent based and then. I think promotion, I mean, I think you got to, I mean, this is where uh, it's not for the faint of heart uh, building a, a, a new global OTT network. Um, I think what you guys need to do is just take uh, take out a lot of billboard and bus ads decla- <laughs> uh, declaring yourself to be the number one show in business. Um, well, I think, you've, uh, I think, yeah, we, we'll, we'll go with humility instead. Um, you mentioned conferences. I'm happy to talk about conferences. Oh, my I'm, goodness. That's part of my business. Uh, rough couple years for the conference business. <laughs> I saw that you guys are, are supposed to be going back in action in Singapore. Yeah, we are. Month. We are actually going back. Uh, and this is a real, we're all going to get everyone back in one yes, room. Yes, it is. Yeah. And we're getting, you know, getting about 350 CEOs, heads of state, government ministers um, from all around the world. Uh, this is, this will be our, our fourth year convening the new economy forum. This is the one that, you know, we've designed as sort of a, this is your, your Davos, Davos, it's a little, it's a, it's kind of embarrassing to say that's, it's our Davos, or, you know, even though I said it just because everyone says, this is the Davos of this, and this is the Davos of that. And, you know, so, but you know, the truth is that Davos is a very, very significant business. It convenes 3000 people, once a year for five, six days in Switzerland. You know, we've got a different model. We, um, you know, we want to only reach a smaller per- mm-hmm. number than that. We want three, three to 400 people. We want the, uh, to be principles only. Um, and it's really an opera. It's not, and we want it to be most importantly, we want it to be populated by the, by the ascendant leaders that are driving the new global economy. So the, so I bet this seemed like a pretty good idea to you guys, maybe late, May, June of this year, and then and then Delta midsummer. Yeah, well, I mean, you're probably this, locked in at that point. Did you? Did, was there a point where you had to go? Uh, let's. We're going to plow ahead with this, or were you locked in for the whole year? Just curious. Well, I mean, the the. I mean, this this project has been um, has faced the incredible geopolitical and and other uh, public global public health crises. It was, we launched in 2018 in China in Beijing. And of course, there was a trade war with Trump and that the Chinese disinvited us. And so we went to Singapore. Then there was a a global pandemic. um, And so we, uh, no, the next year we went to China. The next year was a global pandemic. We, we, We did virtual. And this year, you know, obviously it was touch or go. We, you know, we decided that working with the Singaporean government who've been incredibly helpful, it was just, it was, it was basically a milestone by milestone evaluation thing. Every two weeks, every 
every three weeks, just looking at the data and seeing where we are. But, you know, we've got an amazing group. Um, you know, some of the biggest uh, CEOs in the world uh, are there. And Hank Paulson is our, uh, and Henry Kissinger, the chairs of our advisory board, and have been key architects in this. We expect the Chinese government to engage in a significant way. They, the Chinese government have always sent one of their top leaders to this event, which is an engage, which is part of why we've done this. And, you know, I think there's there's a sense of, you know, we got to get back to back to normal. Milkin took place in California with 3,000 people. And um, obviously COP26, the big climate conference, is taking place next week in Glasgow. I mean, that's... And um, code conference you know, happened in L.A. in September. Code, yeah, so, so, so pay your events organizers well because they're, they're busting forward, their asses yeah. for you. Um, let, let me ask you, okay, we're, we're here. We're now we're going to talk about podcasts. Um which uh, we've been, we've been uh, blowing this up. It's it's not going to be that big of a confrontation. But I was at an event with you in the spring, and you made a point. You were the, with a bunch of people who a bunch of newsroom leaders who were interested in podcasting, and you, I think, partly because you believed it, and partly to stir the pot, said you guys are all delusional. You're all over investing in podcasting. This is something journalists like to do, but consumers don't really care about. Advertisers don't care about. It's too small of an opportunity. You should be spending all that time on video <laughs> time well, and resources to which i say go go build go build quick tiktok quick take <laughs> but but let your let your journalists make some podcasts that it might be a good business for you it, it can't hurt what am i missing here listen i mean well one i i, I accept that that's your recollection of my comments i would I, i'm not going to go through them each one, one one after the other to refute them the, the, the general idea is actually correct which is you know i think that there is a uh, the po a, good, a good phrase for describing podcasts in, in newsrooms would be, you know, let a hundred flowers bloom. You know, it's sort of, let's, you know, it's, it's the most natural extension, I think, of text-based storytelling for a, you know, a, a text-based, a, a writer, a journalist. And it makes tons of sense in the, the transition, I think, storytelling-wise from text to podcasting is totally natural. It actually makes sense to have reporters reading, not reading their stories, but doing their interviews uh, and recording them, as, as opposed to having them uh, go on TV and yes, read their yeah, stories. Yeah, it's, 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 and I think that, um, that is fantastic, and I think that it's it's a it's a kind of an evolution of the craft, which obviously, and this one thing, I don't think no consumers are interested. I think consumers are, are really interested, but I it's it's really um, my point was more specifically about the um, the volume and the scale of the enthusiasm for for these podcasts and 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 relative to the. Um, the audience and relative to the commercial opportunity. And if you're, if you're managing a media business, a journalism-based media business, you, you have to apply certain filters on where your resources are being allocated. And, um, you know, I, I think that oftentimes, uh, and this also ties into the sort of the journalist as individual brand question, which is, you know, a... Um, a great journalist with an independent voice and a great, uh, a great perspective on a subject may want to say, hey, listen, I want to become a multi-platform uh, voice and I want to podcast and I want to do this and do that and be on social. And, mm -hmm. and while that may be actually a really important uh, evolution for that person, there has to be some sort of tension in the system where one evaluates whether or not that, that actually it makes economic sense or whether that is an allocation of resources 
that is better or worse than something else. And Wait, spell, um, that, it, spell that out. What is what is wrong with with? Because I think I know where you're going. But spell out what's wrong with a Bloomberg, a, an, interpre- an, an enterprising Bloomberg reporter saying, "I would like to build up my my profile and brand. Part of that will be a podcast and a newsletter, and that will make me more valuable. It benefits me, but it also benefits Bloomberg, my employer. It does if you can deliver on the, that person can, can deliver on the promise of a significant audience." And a significant, but then that audience could be significant in terms of not just volume, but in terms of influence. And also, uh, in addition to that, there is there is a legitimate conversation about the, the the possible commercialization or monetization of it. It's not to say that actually there aren't many situations where there is such a strong individual talent that wants to express themselves across different platforms, but it may not be a commercial opportunity, and yet. It's really important for publishers to say, well, that's fine too. You know, we, you know, it's fine to do that as a retention strategy, for instance, even though it may not build larger audiences and large uh, and large commercial opportunities. So, I guess it's it's really about how newsrooms um, work with business uh, counterparts or colleagues, or to make sure that as individuals in, in the newsroom expand into different ways that we're doing it in a way that actually is logical, makes sense, and is based on some sort of analysis of what, you know, where we should be putting our resources. Because it could be that someone wants to do a podcast, it's going to have 150 listeners, it takes up a lot of time, but in fact, the actual marginal value of that journalist create is amazing at long form, you know, and then we get millions of readers on long form, you know. Uh, so uh, it's, you know, it's a, it's a case-by-case uh, question. Um, it's one you know, which I think all journalism-based organizations are thinking about. And I think it, 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 it depends on, on how the business side and the journalistic side work together. As I recall, my takeaway from this conversation was you're presenting sort of a false choice that, that we're pouring all this time and money and energy into podcasts and it should go into video. For one, I think, you know, except for the New York Times, there's not a lot of resources being poured into podcasting. The Times is hiring everyone who's ever uh, hit record on a podcast or talked into a mic, and uh, they're doing really well. Um, But most people aren't. uh, And most people have been trying to do video for a long time. The Times, by the way, had many, many, many stabs at video, never broke through. And actually, what broke through for them was a podcast, and which I don't think proves my point. It's just not that, like, it's not that investing in video is a new concept for any of these newsrooms. They've all been chasing it for a long time. Strategies and platforms change, but they all get what you're saying, which is this is a giant pile of money and we should get some of it. Yeah. I mean, I think it's it's maybe an easier argument to make with, um, you know, I think business journalists, you know, here obviously are trained in thinking about sort of businesses and business models. And, you know, and I think, that it's not an unreasonable position just to say, okay, listen, we've got, you know, we've got this incredible newsroom of, of uh, let's say, 100 journalists, and we've got all these different opportunities to do these different things. Let's have an open conversation about where we can um, both express ourselves journalistically and in ways that really matter and matter to ourselves individually and to our audiences and grow our influence. But let's also have the conversation about where it makes sense commercially and it, and um, and audience-wise and how, th- how does that ladder up to the broader organization's goals. It's I think that's more what I'm arguing is, is to have that kind of grown-up transparency and discussion as opposed to uh, just having it not be thought through. 
I'm all for grown up and transparencies and discussions. And I, and on behalf of my 150, give or take listeners, uh, I appreciate you coming on here to discuss. I don't think that I changed your mind or vice versa, but it was good to have it out. Uh, Justin Smith, I'm glad we got to do this. I look forward to seeing you in real life again one day. Me too, Peter. Thanks so much. Thanks again to Justin Smith and Matthew Ball and Joel and Jelani for editing and producing and our sponsors for bringing this show to you for free and to you guys for listening and telling people about it. Gotten very good feedback from uh, the shows we've been doing the last few months. Glad to hear it. Got to keep doing more for you. This is Recode Media. We'll see you next week. <laughs>